Well, good good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome visitors. It is good to gather with you this morning to worship our our treasure, the Lord Jesus Christ. If I haven't had the opportunity to meet you yet, my name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving as as one of the elders here of Stafford Baptist Church. We come now in our service for our time to hear the proclamation of God's Word today from Matthew 19. So please, if you would, open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 19, where we are going to be in verses 13 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to use one of the print Bibles provided for you there in the pew where you can find our passage on page 824. 824, Matthew 19, 13 through 30, how to have treasure in heaven. How to have treasure in heaven. Treasure is not a noun I would use to describe anything I own. As in, I don't own any treasure, no chests of gold and jewels. But it is a verb I might use that I, that there are things that I treasure. Obviously, my, my family, my wonderful wife and adorable children. I even have some possessions, I would say, that I treasure, that I treat as a treasure. This nice Bible for example, a gift from my wife, but, but many others that are, are harder to admit. Maybe my literal piles of books with too many unread. Maybe my big screen TV or my phone, judging by how much time I spend with them. Well, I'm sure there are things that, that you treasure as well, and some that you'd be Quick to admit, but some might, you might be more embarrassed to admit. We all treasure some things, hold some things as particularly valuable and enjoyable. So I wonder what, what comes to mind for you. What do you treasure? Better yet, what would we say if we saw how you spent your time, your money, your focus, what would it look like that you treasure? And, and more importantly, is that treasure, what you spend your time, your money, your focus on, is it the best that this world has to offer? Or is there something even more valuable than the things of this world? Something that you don't have to hunt for, like a treasure chest? Something that will last forever? Well, that's the question that our passage answers for us today, that there is something better than the treasures on earth. In our passage today, we're going to listen in on Jesus' interaction with, with children, with a rich man, and with his disciples, all about how we, with them, can enjoy the inexhaustible riches of treasure in Christ. And, of course, before we listen... We're going to pause and pray and ask God to give us grace to help us hear His Word. Our prayer for illumination this morning is not my own. It was written in the 16th century, but I'm going to pray it and we're going to make it our own this morning. So please pray with me for our hearing of God's Word. Let's pray. Almighty God 
and most merciful Father, we, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before your majesty, asking you from the, the bottom of our hearts that, that this seed of your word now sown among us may take such deep root that neither the, the burning heat of persecution cause it to wither, nor the, the thorny cares of this life choke it. But that as seed sown in good ground, that it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. In the name of Christ we ask this. Amen. Well, read with me how to have treasure in heaven in Matthew 19, starting in verse 13. Then children were brought to him, that is Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, what, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last first. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. What's the substance of our passage in one sentence? Well, our main idea today might be this. Have treasure forever through humble faith following Christ, not wealth or works. Have treasure forever through humble faith following Christ, not through wealth or works. I wonder if you saw it directly as, as we read it in verse 21. Jesus tells the man how it is that he might have treasure in 
heaven. But that's just one way of saying it. By my count, there are eight references in this passage to what awaits someone in heaven. He calls it possession of a kingdom, salvation, eternal life, treasure in heaven. This whole passage is teaching us that the way to gain access to this treasure of a kingdom, salvation, and eternal life is not in our wealth or by our works, but by following Christ. From beginning to end, from the the children to the rich man to his disciples, he calls on them to have treasure in heaven by following him. Our main idea, one last time, have treasure forever through humble faith following Christ, not wealth or works. We're going to see that, we're willing, in five points today. How do we have treasure in heaven? Five points. First, have humble faith. That in verses 13 through 15. Second, deal with Jesus personally in verse 16. Third, know that only one is good. That in verses 17 through 20. Fourth, treasure Jesus today in verses 21 and 22. And finally, number five, leave everything to follow Jesus. Don't worry, I'll repeat those as we go. But five again, have humble faith. Deal with Jesus personally. Know that only one is good. Treasure Jesus today and leave everything to follow Jesus. Well, join me again in verse 13, our first point. How? How do we have treasure in heaven? Number one, have humble faith. Number one, have humble faith. In context, Jesus has left Galilee at the beginning of chapter 19, the the region of his hometown and his his home base of operations, and he is headed south toward Jerusalem, really his his final journey before his crucifixion has begun. And, And here in this first short scene, some parents bring their children to Jesus. Verse 13, these children don't come of their own accord, it seems that they're Parents bring them to him. And it says, why? That, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. Sometimes when Jesus lays his hands on people, it's, it's so that they might be healed. For example, like the, the young girl in Matthew 9 who had died. But here, these parents aren't after healing. No, these parents want Rabbi Jesus to bless their children Laying hands in this context is a mark of, of blessing that accompanies prayer. So it's not some magical ritual. It's simply a physical sign of what is asked for in prayer, that God's hand of blessing might be on the one that they, they pray for. But as these children come in verse 13, at the end of the verse, the disciples rebuke the people, these parents, for bringing their children to Jesus. We don't know exactly what motivated these disciples, but we can can assume that they sincerely wanted to protect Jesus' time. They thought that he couldn't be bothered by such unremarkable work as simply laying hands on children to pray for them. But they were, verse 14, so wrong. Jesus didn't lash out at the disciples, but simply taught them by, by word And by example, let the little children come to me and do not 
hinder them. Jesus welcomes these, not only in word, but, but in deed, and does lay hands on them and, and blesses them. This morning, I want to speak to our children. Children, let me, let me speak to you for just a moment. Do you know any really, really busy and important people? Imagine if someone like, like the president, the, the leader of our country, visited our church today. He is a very busy man. Uh, I'm not sure what would bring him to our church. But I can imagine if he were here, he would have to be in and out, get to the most important business and be gone on to the next important deal. Well, Jesus is in fact far, far more important than even our president. But he is also far, far more gentle and humble in heart than even the best president, pastor, or parent. He would say to you, come. You are welcome. He welcomes you to come to him. I know that that we can't see him now, but Jesus is alive and, and knows you. He knows all of us. He made us and he welcomes you. He too is king, much like a president. And he wants you to be part of his kingdom by trusting him. He died on the cross to take the punishment that you and I, that that everyone deserves for our disobedience because he loves us and he welcomes us. And children, your family and your church want to help you to come to Jesus. We can't carry you to Jesus like these parents did, but, but we can tell you about Jesus and pray, talk to him with you. Parents in, in church, I, I want to talk to you as well. There are some blessings that we can give to our, our children. Clothes, food, love. But the most important blessings in this life can only come from Jesus. Entrance into the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. May May our legacies as families, as a church for the children here is that we brought them faithfully to Jesus to receive from him the blessings that only he can give. But notice, church, what else Jesus says in verse 14. He has a a for statement, a, a reason. He gives us reason why to welcome the children to him. Why let children come to him? For, he says, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. To such belongs the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, what he's speaking about here, is a biblical way of talking about Jesus' reign. Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. Not yet, at least. It is now spiritual and invisible. It doesn't have any borders. But it does have embassies, if you will. Embassies of heaven on earth in the church. The people in his kingdom are submitted to him as king. They have received salvation from him. And Jesus is saying here in verse 14, to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that those who are in, those who possess this kingdom are like 
children. Jesus has already taught this. You might remember at the beginning of chapter 18, what apparently the disciples had forgotten. Matthew 18, he says, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There Jesus is teaching us. He's calling on us through the example of of children to turn and become like them in a particular way. To be humble. Children are a great example of the humility that Jesus says is necessary to gain entrance into the kingdom of heaven. So how do we have treasure in heaven? Have humble faith. To come like a child to Christ in humble dependence. Not like a a politician to the president, wheeling and dealing, negotiating to get your end of the bargain. To come rather with nothing. Nothing to offer in exchange. In, In humble dependence and in confidence with joy. That our Heavenly Father will give what we need. And we never outgrow this need for humility. The only way to enter the kingdom of heaven and receive the treasure that it promises is through humble faith. And that's in in stark contrast to our our next scene. Jesus is, is next approached not by a child, but by a man of significant social standing. Who the disciples have no problem welcoming near Jesus. But it's in fact this man who in the end turns away from Jesus. So our next point. How do we have treasure in heaven? Number two. Deal with Jesus personally. How do we have treasure in heaven? Second. Deal with Jesus personally. Well, The next scene starting here in verse 16. Sometime later, a man approaches Jesus. A man who we soon learn is is wealthy. And he greets Jesus there in verse 16 with a, a title of respect, calling him teacher. He recognizes Jesus as a legitimate religious authority. And he, he comes to Jesus, this rabbi, this teacher, with a very good question. What good deed must I do To have eternal life. Well, a few things to notice about this this first verse here. He, this man, anticipates the reward of eternal life. That's what he's after. He expects that after this life, there is an eternal fate beyond. Jesus has spoken at length in this gospel about this eternal life and about a way to life. You might remember in his Sermon on the Mount, where he taught, he commanded us to enter by the narrow gate. He said, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, to eternal life. And those who find it are few. So this man wants to wants to know about this narrow gate, this hard way that leads to life rather than destruction. But notice, too, that, that when Jesus answers this question, Jesus talks not only about entering life, there at the end of verse 17, 
but also about having treasure in heaven in verse 21 and, and entering the kingdom of heaven and of God in verses 23 and 24. His disciples therefore ask who can be saved in verse 25 and, and Jesus finally returns to the inheritance of eternal life in verse 29. My point is that all these terms are various ways of describing one reality, the fate that awaits us after death. All of this is speaking about the same reality. Will it be after death, life, treasure, a kingdom, and salvation? Or will it be destruction? That's what this whole passage is about. Our question, how to have treasure in heaven, is another way of asking, how do we have eternal life? The man's question here. Or how do we possess the kingdom? Or how can we be saved from this destruction? What the disciples ask later. I hope you see that's a very important question. And I hope that you would listen to the one man in all of history who climbed out of the tomb. Who in the face of death and destruction had life indestructible life. So whatever other answers, other religions or worldviews might give, we have to acknowledge up front, they do not come from the man who died and lives forever. But, but notice too, just in his question in verse 16, he isn't asking about one, what one must do in general, but for himself personally. Not what must be done, but what, what must I do to gain eternal life? Salvation is a private business. By that, I don't mean it's secret, but that it's personal. The Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle put it so well. He said, everyone who wishes to be saved must, must, have private, personal dealings with Christ about his own soul. Salvation is not an academic pursuit for your head. You and I must personally, from, from the very core of ourselves, have dealings with Jesus about our eternal souls, like this man does here. No one can do that for you. As much as your family and friends might encourage and pray, it is up to us to deal honestly with Jesus for ourselves. Have you? Or do you only know him by proxy? Oh, my, my parents know him. My church talks a lot about him. I'm content with just religious feelings. Friends, this passage is an invitation to deal with Jesus personally. There is no way to have treasure in heaven without personal dealings in humble faith with Jesus. There are no plus ones to the wedding feast of the Lamb in the age to come. You must personally know and love the groom and be part of the bride, the church. How do we have treasure in heaven? We must deal with Jesus personally. 
And as we do, Jesus will deal with us personally. Each of us, in our own way, must come to recognize and remember the next truth, our third point. How do we have treasure in heaven? It's this truth. We must know that only one is good. Our third point, know that only one is good. This is the truth that Jesus presses on this man. Jesus replies to his question, meeting the man where he is, but he replies in a question there in verse 17. Just in principle, it's good to put this in your pocket. Whenever God or God incarnate asks a question, it's not because he's trying to find out something he doesn't already know. Jesus knows this man's thoughts and, and heart. We've seen this already in Matthew, in Matthew 9 and 12. There, Jesus knowing the thoughts of the the scribes and the Pharisees. No, Jesus' question is not an an inquiry, but an invitation for the man to consider the answer. So Jesus questions there in verse 17. The man whose thoughts he knows, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. So Jesus' question is king off the man's question. He's asking about good deeds. Here he's asking about, why do you ask me about what is good? So Jesus is, is pushing him. Why this concern for good? Do you really do good? I assert there is only one who is good. Of course, he just says that there is only one who is good, and we have to provide for ourselves who that one good one is. And it is, of course, God. This is the glad announcement, for example, of Psalm 106, verse 1. that says, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. All of mankind, you and I, on the other hand, are not good. Psalm 14, verse 3, later quoted by Paul in Romans 3 speaks of all mankind. It says, There is none who does good, not even one. Of course, we mean this in a relative sense. Certainly people do good things. But that term, good, can only be applied to mankind in a relative way. In an absolute sense, in in a complete sense, there is only one who is good. Exactly as Jesus says, no ifs, ands, or buts, God. Even the best people are never always good. And their best good never approaches the fullness of the goodness of God. And this is a truth that we all have to recognize. A part of how we have treasure in heaven is knowing that there is only one who is good And it isn't you. It is the bedrock truth of the Bible that none of us deserve or can earn treasure, life, and salvation. And it's this very truth that this man seems so very far from grasping. His question, again, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life? His assumption is that eternal life can be earned by good works. So Jesus tells him, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. In other words, good deeds are what we 
must do at least to enter life. It's what God has commanded in his words. If you want to know what goods, good deeds must be done, it's what he has commanded in his word. And yes, what God commands in his word is invariably good, even if it's not popular, even if the world around us, around us finds what God commands as antiquated or even worse, reprehensible, God's commands are good. Well, this man wants to be sure. He says in verse 18, which ones? He is, after all, dealing with eternal fate. There are a lot of commandments. He wants to know which ones must he do to have eternal life. Well, in reply there, in verse 18 and, and on, Jesus quotes to him five of the Ten Commandments, along with Leviticus 19.18. And the five of the ten that Jesus quotes are all from the, the second half of the Ten Commandments, those dealing with our relationship with others and those that are our most visible. And he leaves off, for example, the tenth, you, you shall not covet because it's, it's hard to verify. Coveting is something we do in our hearts. But not only these five of the Ten Commandments, he adds that wonderful summary of the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus will later say that this is part of the greatest commandment. So Jesus condenses hundreds of commandments down to six, obviously saying nothing about his love for God and worship of God in, in conspicuous omission that we will see why later. Of course, his point, Jesus' point, is, is not that this is all that is necessary and the rest, all the other commands are just extraneous fluff. No, his point is to draw out the man. What does he really think of himself? And we find very clearly in verse 20, look at it with me, the young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? I wonder what you would say to the man who said that. Let's be generous. I want to assume that he is sincere. Jesus does not go on to rebuke him for lying. Maybe he is one of the, the more righteous men in Israel, that he has kept the law blamelessly in at least these six ways. You know, Paul will later say, as a Pharisee, he too was blameless as to righteousness under the law. So maybe he's, he's like that. Well, first of all, Jesus' whole sermon on the mount was to show that we need to be even more righteous than the Pharisees. Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, like Paul, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. If you want to have treasure in heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the perfect. Jesus goes on in that sermon to show how it's not just the letter of the law, but its fullest meaning that we must keep. It's not just murder, but to be angry with a brother that makes us liable to judgment. It's not just our neighbor that we must love, Leviticus 19.18, but even our enemies as well. And that no man can do on their own in order to be saved. We need a righteousness not of our own. 
As good as our best is, it is still only relative and never the goodness of God. It will always fall short of how good God is and how He made us to be perfect. Image bearers of His glory now tainted by sin. So how, saints, do we have treasure in heaven? It is not by our good works, by our law-keeping. We must know that there is only one who is good, and it is none of us. Our best efforts, as sincere as they might be, will never reach the lofty heights of the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. Rather, we must come to know that that only God is good, and it is only based on His goodness that He gives the gift of salvation through humble faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Are you trying to earn eternal life like this man by by what you do? Good works will never earn eternal life. It is only by what Christ has done for you that you can be saved. And because of the gifts that He gives, namely His righteousness, His perfect righteousness, we are invited to treasure Christ above all other gifts. Our fourth point, how do we have treasure in heaven? Treasure Jesus today. Number four, treasure Jesus today. You know, a a capricious deity might just zap this man right here now for his pride. But Jesus, in fact, welcomes him. The nub of it is there in the last phrase of verse 21, where Jesus invites the man and says, Come, follow me. He invites this man to discover the greatest treasure of heaven and earth himself. Come. But first, there is the matter of an obstacle in the way. In verse 21. Jesus is inviting this man to perfection, to the fullness that marks his disciples by telling him to go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Few things to observe here. First, first, I want to point out that Jesus does not tell the man to go, sell, and give it to me. Jesus personally does not want or need the man's money. And in fact, Jesus doesn't even tell the man, go sell and give it to the temple. I had the opportunity years ago to visit one of the biggest mosques in the world, the Sheikh Zayed Grand Mosque. In Abu Dhabi. It is to this day the most beautiful building I have ever seen. If memory serves me, Sheikh Zayed used his riches to build the mosque because Allah rewards that gift. I quote a hadith, a, a saying attributed to Muhammad. He said, Whoever builds a mosque for Allah, Allah will build a palace for him in paradise. It's, it's one-to-one. For the Muslim, you can get treasure in heaven by building a mosque. Well, if that's true, the richest in heaven will be the rich in this world. 
The rich in this world will inherit the greatest blessing in heaven. But Jesus says that the poor widow who put in two small copper coins put in more than all the others, more than even a shake. I want to be clear here. What, what Jesus is telling the man to do is not the final good deed that he must do to earn the treasure, like building a mosque to have a palace in heaven. No, rather, what Jesus is teaching is consistent with what, with what the whole Bible teaches about salvation. Jesus is inviting this man to divest of his worldly treasure to embrace a better one, the only real one. Jesus has taught you cannot serve God and money. Money can serve as a master just as much as God can. And you cannot have two masters. Jesus has identified that this man serves another God, an idol that is not God, money. If Jesus had quoted to him some of those first commandments, you shall have no other God before me, this man would have failed. So by selling, he is inviting this man to repent of his love for wealth and instead love or treasure the only God, Christ. We have to notice here, it is not sin to have wealth. It is loving wealth and allowing it to be your God, to direct your life rather than Jesus. That is sin. The invitation Get rid of your possessions, your other gods, and come get me, the only true God, Jesus. Jesus does not command all his disciples to to likewise get rid of, of everything they own to follow him. This very gospel will later speak of Joseph of Arimathea, a disciple of Jesus who is called a rich man. You might think of the example of Zacchaeus in Luke 19, a rich disciple who willingly sells half of what he owns to give to the poor without Jesus telling him to do so. I could multiply examples, but I don't want to because there's danger in that. You might get the impression, oh, good, I I thought you might tell me to sell all my possessions I get to keep all my wealth. Well, let me repeat. No one, no one can serve two masters. That includes you. If if that attitude sounds like you, I get to keep all my wealth, then I would suggest that Jesus would say the same to you as he said to this man. You cannot serve two masters. You must choose who will get your ultimate Allegiance. Jesus is not honored if you only follow him as long as it means you don't have to give up your stuff. Jesus is not honored if you only follow him as long as fill in the blank. If there is anything there, I will follow as long as then you are serving another God keeping back and not following Jesus. The invitation of this text today is to come and make Jesus king, not money, not anything else, so that you would say, I will follow you no 
matter what. Jesus is the greatest treasure in the world. All the ways that this text talks about the reward of the afterlife are different ways of saying that we get Jesus. Do you see, when we enter the kingdom of heaven, it means that we are now citizens of his kingdom. Yes, we relate to other citizens, but only because we all relate to the king or life. When this passage enters, promises us life, it is in fact to come to Jesus. John 17.3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To have life is to have God who is life, who has all life in himself. And treasure, the invitation to have treasure in heaven, the treasure that awaits us in heaven is not more, better stuff. No, the beauty and perfection of heaven is unhindered and everlasting fellowship with something far greater than things. It is the God who made all things. Every way that this passage talks about the reward that we await is talking about having Jesus. The goodness of things that that we enjoy here and now, maybe the the high resolution of a TV or the the comfort of money or the, the delicacies of food, all come from their source in their creator, our triune God. Saints, I desire nothing more than for all of us this morning to have our hearts kindled with this truth this morning. The greatest treasure in all of heaven and earth is Jesus Christ. The reward held out for us this morning that we might gain is Jesus Christ. How do we have treasure in heaven? Why wait? Treasure Jesus today. Jesus Christ came because Adam and Eve and and everyone since them have been deceived into treasuring something other than God. That they, that we seek some other good outside of God. We are all born with the, the same sickness, looking for treasure in all the wrong places. But Jesus came to live a perfect life of treasuring the heavenly Father with complete obedience. And and though he deserved life, he willingly died on the cross for our sins. On the cross, he suffered the penalty that, that we deserve for treasuring all the kinds of things that are not God's. The things that, that take the place of God in our heart. So that we no longer need to face condemnation for our sins. It isn't our works or even our wealth that earn us a spot in paradise. It is Jesus' works credited to us through humble faith. And the invitation this morning, I invite you, every one of us, to deal with Jesus personally. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time to recognize again this morning that God alone is good that we need to confess our sins despite our our greatest efforts and I invite you to treasure Jesus today 
Let none of us walk out of here this morning like this man who, in verse 22, sadly refuses Jesus' offer. He is a, a living example that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Instead of turning away joyfully to be free of his love of money, to have a better God, he instead away went, went away with sorrow. He loved his possessions. The thought of parting from them brought him sorrow with no greater joy in treasuring Jesus. Friends, it is our joy to leave everything to follow Jesus. Our fifth and final point, how do we have treasure in heaven? Number five, leave everything to follow Jesus. Leave everything to follow Jesus. This exchange with this rich man gives opportunity for Jesus to teach his disciples about the dangers of wealth, starting in verse 23. And he states the principle twice in verse 23 and again in 24. One in, in plain prose and again with a graphic metaphor. So the principle there in verse 23, it is difficult for the rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It can be compared to, in verse 24, the difficulty of getting a camel through the eye of a needle. A camel would be the largest animal known in the region. Any of you who sew, can a camel get through the hole designed for a thread? No. No, it is impossible. That is how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. His disciples will respond in verse 25. We'll get to that, but, but we need to sit on that for a minute. This is totally contrary to natural impulses. That there is inherent danger in wealth. We normally see it as a, a good. And I don't think Christians can hide behind the excuse. Oh, well, I'm already in. I've gotten through that eye of a needle. I'm not at risk. No, the way that kingdom citizens behave is to flee risk. He taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. It is foolish to invite temptation. The wisdom of Proverbs says that, that we should aim at neither poverty, that is absolute destitution, nor just more and more until we feel no need. Proverbs chapter 30 verses 8 and 9 asks, it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Rather, feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Practically, saints, this means that, that we should not always be looking to move on to the next, the greater standard of living. Wealth and and all that it brings is the soil in which pride easily grows. It is so easy to love money, to adopt it as our God. Even if you could get a higher paying job, that doesn't mean you should. You might, but consider the danger inherent. Are you prepared to deal with the temptation of greater wealth? 
Have you been faithful with little? What do you plan on doing with more money? Will it help you love Christ more or love the world more? You know, the society around us, the air that we breathe, applauds those who make their millions, but who never have time for their family or church, or more importantly, the God who gave that wealth. We, in our kingdom, live with different values in a different kingdom. Though I do admit, sometimes our world gets it right. As it is said, mo money, mo problems. My favorite verse as of late is Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For, why? He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We can be content with what we have. We can be free from the love of money because we have a greater love, the one who will never leave nor forsake us. We have a greater, the greatest treasure in God himself. But it's not just God that we have. As we see in these final verses, he also promises us much, much more by his grace. Starting in in verse 25, the, the disciples are surprised. When they hear of the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven for the rich, they're greatly astonished. In their conception, if anyone was going to make it in, it's the rich. The riches, they thought, were a sign of God's favor. So if not them, then who? Well, Jesus' answer is not only theologically dense, it's also extremely comforting in verse 26. That's the point of truth, of good theology, to bring us comfort, to lift our hearts. Verse 26, he says, With man... This, that is, salvation. With man, salvation is impossible. In other words, men, rich or not, cannot save themselves. In fact, it's not just difficult. It is impossible. And not just for the rich, but for for all men. No one can save themselves. None of us is humble enough or good enough for on ourselves to get into heaven. Salvation is not the cooperation between the top percent of men with God. No, salvation is wholly a work of God. With all men whatsoever, salvation is impossible. But he goes on in verse 26. But with God, all things are possible. The salvation of the rich and all alike you and I, is only possible because of the grace and power of God. Our God is so big and so good that there is absolutely no obstacle that He cannot overcome for our salvation with ease. In fact, it's wrong to call anything an obstacle for God. Nothing is hard for Him. And even despite the absolute explosive grandeur of what Jesus just said, Peter lacks assurance. Peter asks in verse 27, We left everything to follow you. What what about us? What will we have? It's not uncommon for genuine believers, those who 
profess faith in Christ to still wonder. Yes, I hear you. I know God is so big and so good that that all is possible. But is it true for me? Will I be saved? Now, Jesus loves to give assurance to those who doubt. So Jesus replies, starting in verse 28, in, in two parts. First, in verse 28, I think we have a particular promise to the 12 apostles. He mentions very specifically 12 thrones. And then in verse 20, 29, a universal promise for all disciples. So in other words, 28 applies just to them. Verse 29, to any here today who follow Christ. So first, verse 28. These 12 will have a particular role in the, the new world. In, in the age to come, when, when history is closed, when his kingdom is consummated, when Jesus has returned and final judgment has happened, Jesus will sit on his glorious throne. This will be a physical reality, not just as it is now in, in heaven. And these 12, I think, will have a part in that. He says they will also sit on 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Certainly other parts of the Bible speak of all of disciples' role in judgment. You can go read 1 Corinthians 6. All saints will have a a role in judging the world. But it seems here to say that that these 12 will have a particular role in judging Israel. I think it's because these 12 who lived during the time of Jesus will give a particular witness and judge Israel for their rejection of the Jewish Messiah. But whatever the case, it is very clear in verse 29 that everyone, the twelve and everyone else included, everyone who leaves anything to follow Jesus for his name's sake will receive 100-fold in that age along with eternal life. He mentions here the things that we might leave behind, possessions like houses and lands, but five of the seven that he lists are family. Three generations listed, parents, siblings, and children. Of course, by leave, left these things, he doesn't mean physical abandonment. The call to follow Christ includes the command that he just quoted, to honor father and mother. It would be a particular heinous evil to abandon children when he just modeled how to bring children to Jesus. So it makes it clear to leave means that it is our primary allegiance that is switched from family to Jesus. It's as Jesus says in Luke 14.33, any of you who do not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Just like stuff, family too must be a distant second to Jesus. And making family a second to Jesus means, for example, obeying what Jesus just taught about being faithful to our spouse and teaching our children about Jesus. And that's just from this chapter. So in fact, making family second actually makes us a far better child, sibling, and parent. And finally, in verse 29, he promises 100-fold to those who leave all to follow Jesus. 
compensation like that can never be something you earn. This is grace, an undeserved gift. Both now in the church and into age to come, we who follow Christ have far more family. We have far more than simple houses and acreage. We inherit a kingdom with all its possessions and people and most of all, its king. There is a great reversal in this kingdom. To lose, to leave, is to gain. The humblest is the greatest. The first will be last. And the last first. How is it, brothers and sisters, that we have treasure in heaven? We must have humble faith. Like that of a child, dependent and confident. We must deal with Jesus personally. You yourself must come to him in humble faith. We must all know that only one is good. That we, by our good works, can never earn this treasure. And that we must treasure Jesus today. To see him for who he is. The gift from heaven And the gift kept in heaven for us. And finally, we must leave everything to follow Jesus. That he is worthy of our complete and undivided allegiance above all things. Church, have treasure forever. Through humble faith, following Christ. Not wealth or works. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, asking that you would do the same work in us that you have done with these children, this man and the disciples, that you would teach us what it means to have treasure, how we might gain access to treasure, to eternal life, to salvation. Father, that you would make us like humble children, depending on you, with nothing in our hands. Father, that we, each of us, would now deal with Jesus personally. That we would know that that only one is good. That we might treasure him today. And as we genuinely treasure him, that we would leave all to follow, to have him forever. It's in his name that we pray this. Amen.